episode of Barbarian to the Gate. This is Jeremiah Jenny, along with my co-host, James Palmer. Today we're going to be talking about the rebellions that led to the formation of Chinese state power out in Central Asia and what is today Western China, particularly about the life and legacy of one of the most fascinating figures of the 19th century, a man named Jakob Begg. Well, where was he from? He was born, you know, out in Foxville, nowhere, Central Asia, like so many of these characters. And he's the last, really, at least the last in Chinese history of the great adventurers, the guys who could start with nothing more than mild sociopathy and a few dozen men and end up creating entire kingdoms out of nothing. Now, of course, that's how all kingdoms get started, but right up until 1900, 1920, you could still pull it off in Central Asia and the Siberia, Mongolia. We have Jakob Beg. He's this guy who comes over from Central Asia, and he ends up in China in the city of Kashgar, beginning around 1865 or so. And, and apparently, he's invited in. The city of Kashgar at that time uh, was the west, one of the westernmost parts of the Qing Empire. This is the middle of the 19th century, and of course, the Qing Empire was ruled by the Manchus, who had expanded their original claims, their original empire, from the northeast border of China, which today China and Korea, to include China, Mongolia. Taiwan, Tibet, and and finally out into the western regions of Xinjiang. But Xinjiang always presented a real problem for the Qing emperors. They had a way, the, the Qing emperors, the Manchus, of being able to be what their constituents needed them to be. They could be a very good Chinese emperor for their Chinese officials. They knew how to act like a Khan for the chieftains of Mongolia and Manchuria. When they talked to people or when they had envoys from Tibet, they could present themselves as students or patrons of Tibetan Buddhism, you know, talking about how their spiritual teacher was the Dalai Lama. But out in Xinjiang, it was a little more difficult for them. They really weren't sure how to handle Islam. And Islam itself, as a universal religion, presented a, a counterweight to the universalism of the Qing emperors and also unified that part of Western China with other states and groups throughout Central Asia and into West Asia. And as a result, you know, you look at places like Kashgar, you look at places like what was what's today Western China, these oasis cities, used to be part of the Silk Road. And even even though for a fairly long time, for about a century between the 18th century and the middle of the 19th century, the, the Qing Empire, the Manchus were able to maintain a certain, a certain semblance of control over the area, I don't think they ever felt totally secure uh, in their grip. It creates an environment that's ripe for these kind of adventurers like Jakob Beg to come over and, and cause all kinds of problems. Xinjiang, of course, as we all know, has been part of China since ancient times, but unfortunately nobody informed the people who lived there. And while we talk about you know Islam acting as a counterweight, the other factor was that the Muslims themselves were highly divided, highly fractious, a bunch of different sects, a bunch of different schools of interpretation, which really had teeth in itself. And navigating through all those subdivisions and tribes and schools of thought was really beyond most Chinese officials or most Qing officials. Whereas if you were an enterprising young man who'd grown up with these rivalries and knew how to make the most of them, you could exploit them to turn Muslim against Muslim, and then Muslim against Chinese, and then Chinese against Muslim in ways that could put you on top. And I think one of the other challenges, as you said, you take a look at Western China, and, and you're talking about different groups of people who all identify culturally or religiously with Islam, but they're very different from each other. You know, first you have the Hui, who, and I know our Chinese friends are going to disagree with us on this, but 
ethnically or racially, they're Chinese, culturally, they're Muslim. And then, of course, you have other groups further out west that present or identify, you know, as an, uh, in many ways, as we think of it, as a different ethnicity who are also Muslim. And that these two groups, just because they share a common religion or cultural pattern, don't, do not necessarily get along. In fact, one of the, the things that Jakob Beg, when he comes into western China, he comes into Kashgar, is able to exploit is, are a lot of these divisions between the people who are, you know, identify as Kyrgyz, or later on, obviously this is anachronistic at the time, but later on we'll identify as Uyghur versus the people who are a little bit further east, a little bit closer to, to central China, who identify more as, as Hui. Or they had a, a term actually in the 19th century for, for the group that today is known as the Hui. At the time, uh, many Europeans would refer to that group as the Dungan. And so the, the revolt or the, the situation that Jakob Beg is looking to exploit in the mid-19th century is what's known as the Dungan Revolt, which took place between 1862 and 1877. And this was a, a moment where Muslim populations in what's today northwest China, Gansu, Ningxia, had begun to rebel against the authority of the Qing government. And there's a lot of reasons why they did this. There were Muslim revolts throughout the empire. Uh, for example, there was a Panthe rebellion down in Yunnan at the same time. We debate the causes today, but some of the causes included things like land use, economic control, as well as a feeling on the part of, as you said, on the part of many of these Muslim groups that the, the Qing government just, just didn't get them. There's also a sense that, you know, everything is falling apart. You obviously have a, a bunch of rebellions at the same time. And so you might as well be out for what you can get. And within the within these these rebellions, Panthe, Dungan, so on, there's also just intense infighting, intense infighting about what version of Islam you should follow, about uh, what it meant to be Muslim. And many of these these groups, you know, which now we call the Hui or, the, or they called the Dungan back then, Hui was really just a label slapped on all Chinese Muslims or almost all Chinese Muslims by the Qing. The the groups that now are all you know it says Hui on your on, on your ID card. They they often had nothing to do with each other historically. They were a mixture of Central Asians who had come into China, of Chinese converts, all manner of things that could get you slapped with this name. So Jakobek comes in in 1865, and he's come from Kokand, and Kokand is a a Khanate, only founded, I think, about 100, 120 years before then. And it had been founded in the same way. It had been founded by uh, a group of wandering bandits, basically, with who had somebody with a noble pedigree on top who turned up and set themselves up as rulers of this of, of this kingdom. And that was very common pattern. In. So it's coming out of this background where a certain military flexibility and a certain flexibility about where you rule is expected. He doesn't seem to have been anything much himself, just, you know, some mountain kid with an eye for command and a pretty decent shot. So he rises to become a military commander in Kokhand, and then he takes advantage of the rebellions that are going on in China to come in and take Kashgar, normally at first on behalf of his master, the emir or sheikh, I forget, of Kokhand, and then very rapidly, Jakob's in charge now. Yeah, it seemed like he'd made Kokhand a little too hot to hold him, uh, that he was this military adventurer, he'd become very useful as a, a, as a, a commander, as a soldier. But as we see in the case of other similar figures, you know, we think back to our podcast on An Lushan, that the better he gets, the more powerful he gets, the more they rely on him, the less they trust him. And so when this opportunity, if you will, arises that, that Kashgar over the mountains is asking Kokan for help, authorities in Kokan are only too happy to send Jakob over there to deal with the problem. And, and in some ways, too, there's a feeling that Jakob himself, Jakob Beg himself, kind of thought of this as, as a fresh start. He was a little excited about getting over to Kashgar as a whole new territory 
territory. And when he gets there, as you said, I mean, he, he quickly throws off the shackles of Kokon and starts to dream pretty damn big. He takes a look at the whole Tarim Basin, which is this large desert surrounded by these oasis towns. He sees there's a, a decline in the authority coming out of Beijing. And as you mentioned, you know, Beijing is having a rough 1860s. This is a decade that began with the burning of the summer palaces. And even though it was the same decade that the, the Qing, the Manchus were finally able to quell these major rebellions like the Taiping Rebellion and the Nian Rebellion, it took an awful lot out of them and took all kinds of resources. And they had to draw these resources from somewhere. And, and you know, it came from all over the empire, but it was certainly felt in this, in this Western region. You know, Jakob Beg looks around and goes, this is, this is a situation ripe for the taking. And at first, in fact, he, at least nominally, is on the side of the Han Chinese. He restores order and he sides with Han Chinese militias. Now, because the troop, because troops had been withdrawn elsewhere to, to quench these rebellions, Xinjiang was kind of hollowed out at this point. You had these bare minimum forces that could fall to, you know, any, any you know, irate rebellion, whether it's over, you know, a few sheep go missing, soldiers have a fight over a local girl. All these things are cropping up all over the place. And of course, when you're on a religious border, as well as an ethnic border, even these small incidents carry like this blood weight suddenly so because suddenly it's not just a fight about pay or about a girl or about stolen sheep it's a fight against the infidel or a fight against the dirty muslims or whatever so these things are fierce and bloody and he comes in and he's like well you know let old Jakob i'll sort you out we'll crush these we'll, we'll crush these ones and i'll make sure that the chinese are looked after properly and then it's well you know Jakob will sort you out we'll crush the chinese and we'll make sure that islam is respected properly and he's he's very willing to, sw- to switch at a moment's notice like like again most of these adventurers but as opposed to just being this one guy out in the desert with his little desert kingdom because this region was then and is now such an important strategic crossroads he gets the attention of all these capitals around the world in places like delhi places like london in places like St. Petersburg, and, and all of these different empires are looking at Jakob Beg as being perhaps the key to their strategic ambitions in Central Asia. So, for example, in Delhi and in London, this idea if we can somehow get Jakob Beg on our side, this is a way for the British to expand you know, their, their rule in Central Asia, maybe place a check against the Russians, who are, of course, coming down. And St. Petersburg is looking at this. They're very suspicious of British uh, ambitions in Central Asia then as now. And in Constantinople with the Ottoman Empire, you know, there's this idea that this is an expansion of Muslim rule into a whole new area. And in 1873, in fact, they, they grant this title of Emir of Kashgaria onto, onto Yaakov Beg. And, and, and all of a sudden, you know, this, this desert warrior is now in a position to start playing let's make a deal with all of these great global powers. And let's not even forget, of course, Beijing. And the Qing Empire is looking west and look, thinking, my goodness, you know, that, ex- that escalated pretty pretty quickly. Many of the people at court, including some of the most important officials of the day, by 1873 were trying to convince you know, the Qing rulers, in this case, it would be you know, the Empress Dowager Cixi, some of the other leading figures at court, that it might be time just to cut their losses out in Western China and marshal their resources for a defense of the coast. That, you know, at this point, the area that's now Xinjiang had more or less been lost to Jakob Beg. And he's getting to some arms from the Russians in particular, seem to have been sending out, sending guns, sending some cannon out there. So he's 
he's taking advantage of his position to solidify it and to make himself personally very rich. He starts taxing people harshly to the degree that they even start to get a little bit nostalgic for the old order because even though the taxes were harsh, you've got to imagine that out in Xinjiang, out on the borders, they were also pretty hard to enforce. When you've got a new local warlord who needs the money himself, who needs the money directly, and who's only a hundred miles away from you as opposed to several thousand miles away from you, suddenly uh, you're much more of a cash cow to him. Ultimately... Jakob Beg, I don't know if he really exploits his position to the extent he can. I think he's very concerned with consolidating his rule over the oasis cities. He doesn't necessarily play the game with the international powers the way he could. And exactly what you said, at this point, he's alienating a lot of the support that he needs if he's going to really be serious about building a viable and long-lasting state out in, uh, out in the, the western desert. And ultimately, the, the Qing government sends his nemesis. And the nemesis, at least for our American listeners, is, is perhaps more famous for a chicken dish than he is as a military strategist. But the Qing, they recruit uh, this general, Zhou Zongtang, to march west and to pacify any of these, any and all of these Muslim rebellions that he sees in his path. And to a great extent, that's exactly what Zhou Zongtang does. And by the time Zhou Zongtang gets out to the western part of the desert when he's ready to do battle with Jakob Beg's forces. This is about 1877. Oddly enough, Jakob Beg doesn't really put up much of a fight. I think he's basically looking to do what any sensible adventurer does in that position, which is cut your losses, seize the treasury, take your family and your coitry of immediate soldiers and run somewhere else where you can set yourself up. So he, he's not a patriot. He's not a visionary looking to create a kingdom or, or forge independence that he can defend. He's a mercenary who's who knows more or less when he's lost and there's nothing there's nothing for people to get behind in defending his new kingdom which he calls Kashgaria there's no there's no there there there's no ethnic or even really religious unity to to defend against the arriving Chinese there's just another sort of petty kingdom so when it comes down to it people aren't going to fight for that and he's you know he, he seems pretty set to take off and I think it's really just that he gets cornered um, and trapped before he can, you know, bring take himself over to Russia or one of the other surviving Khanates or Afghanistan, um, that he, he ends up being cornered by the Chinese authorities and uh, dying in some still very mysterious fashion. And I think a lot of credit has to be given to, at least from the, the, the side of the Qing Empire, to General Zhou Zongtang. Uh, he, he was one of the more, apart from the the eponymous chicken dish. He was one of the most fascinating figures of the, the middle uh, 19th century and the one of the most fascinating figures of the late Qing dynasty. He was a, a farmer, a scholar who lived in Hunan, and even though he never passed the highest levels of the the imperial exams that would have granted him access to you know the halls of power, he had a reputation as being a very practical, uh, very smart, a very serious and forward-thinking a man, and he, he, he ended up joining the staff of several very talented generals during the Taiping Rebellion and emerged from that rebellion as one of the Qing Empire's go-to guys for pacifying crazy and wayward rebellions. And Zhou Zongtang, you know, takes a lot of these tactics with him as he goes out west. He's not looking for appeasement. He's looking to take territory. He's looking to take this territory back. And it's it's probably for the benefit of the Qing Empire and, and even China today that he did act so forcefully because at the time you had Russia who was starting to occupy other parts of what became Xinjiang under the pretext that, well, you know, Jakob begs in Kashgaria. So is this something the Qing Empire is willing to fight for? Other areas that are being threatened by the British, as we said before. And the result is that once Zhou Zongtang so decisively wins this war against Jakob Beg and Kashgaria, it gives the Qing Empire a little bit of leverage 
against the Russians, the British, and some of these other imperial powers to say, hey, listen, you know, we pacified the western part of our empire. You're going to need to back off or, or back out of some of this territory that you've claimed. And it, ultimately, it would lead to a, a treaty that was signed in 1880 between the Qing Empire and St. Petersburg that granted large sections of that land that's now Xinjiang, well, it turned it over from Russia over to the Qing Empire, and, and today it's still part of part of China. What happens, though, with the with many of the local Muslims is that they end up finding the new Qing regime just as unpalatable as any of the old regimes, and devastation, the various atrocities committed by the Chinese army on the way in, the Qing army on the way in, which aren't particularly extreme, they're just the standard atrocities of an army and campaign, which is to say rape, murder, pillage, war, devastation of crops, all appalling stuff followed by a lot of harsh crackdowns on anybody who was seen to have been siding with the rebels. And this pisses off a lot of the the locals to such a degree that the Tsarist Empire starts to seem more appealing. So you have a whole wave of um, what the Russians call Dungan, or of, of Muslims, Hui, Uyghur, various groups, who go across the border, pick up their stuff, and head into Russian territory to escape Qing rule. And basically, if... Cyrus Russia circa 1875, 1880 looks more appealing to you, then you know things are going to be pretty bad. And this is a part of the process, too, that we think of. There was a, a very famous article in that book called Provincializing Xinjiang, and this notion that once Yaka Beg's kingdom is conquered and this area, if you will, is reconquered by uh, General Zhou Zongtang, then one of the next steps is that the Qing Empire formally makes you know, this area a province, or the province of Xinjiang, or the new territory, new borders, new frontier, new dominion, depending how you want to translate that, and, and begins the process of tying it much more firmly through administrative and military control with the rest of the empire. Leading, of course, eventually to the discovery under the PRC that Xinjiang had been part of China since ancient times all along. As we're actually doing this podcast, James and I are dancing a loyalty dance. Please don't knock on my door. Please don't take my visa. I still want to live here. And so Jakob Beg, when he comes to the end, it's a typically mysterious and messy end. He gets cornered, possibly by Chinese troops, possibly by local Muslims. And depending on which version you believe, he poisons himself, he gets poisoned, he gets executed and betrayed. It's a, a, an adventurer's death of a kind that you know suits his life. But what's interesting about it is that it, this is a death that gets reported in the Times, it gets reported in the English and the Russian newspapers. This is somebody who's become so known throughout the world, not just a local adventurer, but somebody sitting at the crux of empires, that he his, that his, his passing, um, in whatever messy or somewhat mythologized form, makes it all the way back to London and St. Petersburg. And I think that really does speak to the fact that Jakob Egg was more than just this, this desert adventurer. He was a figure who was, seemed quite useful in the great game that was going on in Central Asia. Join us next time for another episode of Barbarians at the Gate. This year we're coming up on several important anniversaries. In fact, in a couple of weeks, it's the 40th anniversary of one of China's worst natural disasters. In fact, one of the worst natural disasters of the 20th century, the Tangshan earthquake, which happened 40 years ago in 1976 in a really politically fraught era. And James, you've literally written the book on this subject. So what are we going to talk about when we talk about the Tangshan earthquake? Tangshan earthquake, which hit out of nowhere and literally annihilated a city in the dead of night, was seen by many as a sign that things had come to some cosmic turning point, that it was now or never. And so join us when we talk about the Tangshan earthquake. We're going to lead into a new series here on anniversaries because we've got Tangshan coming up. Uh, we also have the death of Chairman Mao and the ascension of one of my favorite Chinese historical figures, Hua Guofeng, and the arrest of the Gang of Four. Gemma and I are the only people who really appreciate how special Hua was.
after you hear that episode, you will too. So join us next time on another episode of Barbarian at the Gates. Thanks a lot, James. Thank you, Jemma. Okay, drummers, take us out. Thank you.